This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA. We've made it to the end of another official work week, though I know a lot of listeners out here will be working all weekend long trying to keep their farms and operations going. Thanks for taking the time to tune into the show today. We've got a lot coming. We're going to discuss the market here in just a moment with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing. We'll kick that off, seeing a little rally in the corn trade today. We'll get Dwayne's thoughts on that. In segment two, we're going to check in with our political editor friend, Ms. Jackie Fatka from Farm Progress. We're going to talk about some of the advances of bills in the House on the ag side, as well as what's happening in Arkansas today from the Senate Ag Committee. And then in segment three, we are going to be talking everybody's favorite topic, climate change. We're going to be joined by David McNeil. He's the director of climate risk at Fitch Ratings over in London, and he watches how institutional money moves through the global investment chain and how specifically climate risk and ESG components are changing the way that money moves through really, truly the global economy. And he'll give us an update on really the the health of that sector as we get out into the summer for 2022. And at the end of the episode, we're going to check in with our friend Simon Lester of the China Trade Monitor, Senator Marco Rubio proposed a bill that might change the amount of oil we send to China. Simon's going to share his perspective on what that might do. But before we jump into all of that, folks, let's talk the markets. Dwayne, we're seeing new crop rally more than old crop here in the corn market today. Are we starting to get concerned about hot and dry weather over the summer? Absolutely. Yeah, I know it's definitely into a weather market, isn't it, Mike? A little bit cautious. Uh, seeing these hot temps now of course you're you're not going to kill a crop in mid-june um but you you may put a little stress on it and i think we've all seen some of the social media pictures of some onion leaf corn um but i mean if we come back monday night after a three-day holiday and we've got a cooler and more precip in the forecast say we may give this rally back that we've had this week in the corn market Dwayne, and that's a really good point. We're seeing some market activity today that, that I guess, could it be elevated because we are heading into a three-day weekend, and it's the first time the market's really traded this three-day weekend in mid-June. Right, yeah, and and this new holiday is going to be kind of a a big weather weekend every year now. If it is falls on a weekend, I guess that means, of course, you know, about like July 4th, that's always a big time frame for us when we come back from the markets, what's the weather like? And I guess, you know, you take any day off anywhere in here, the weather forecast is big when you come back. I, I did like that our grain commodities, actually all the commodities, seem to divorce themselves away from the equity markets yesterday as the stock market still melted down, but corn, soybeans, cattle all rallied nicely yesterday. It was nice to see that because I was a little bit concerned that you know, if the stock market melts down and we dip into a recession, is that going to pull the A commodities down? And to be honest, I don't know if I'm smart enough to answer that today, Mike. It's a, it's a pretty darn good question. <laughs> It, it, it is a darn good question. And I think that's the question the trade is really going to be wrestling with here as we raise interest rates and look at an equity collapse and all of these things playing out over the summer. Dwayne, in the meantime, farmers have their corn in the ground largely across the bulk of the corn belt. We're starting to see it come up. How would you be handling marketing that new crop given that we've got Dece right now at 743? You know, 
we waited for a long time, but I'm an aggressive hedger at these prices because of the unknown we just talked about. You know, do we have a dollar priced into these corn due to inflation? I, it's very possible. You know, you start to look at the ending stocks, and if we're around $1.4 billion for a new crop ending stock, that doesn't suggest we need to be at seven fifty. Um, now, you get a hot, dry weather forecast, you can get above 8 I, I get that, but I don't know. I, yeah, I, they're great prices and really hard to hard to leave. So I, I like aggressively hedging. We've gone as much as 70% sold for a lot of guys, you know, knowing that, you know, if we come back next week and it's hot, dry forecast, we can buy the September Deese board or March corn board to buy those hedges back if need be. So I, I like to get aggressive selling, but, you know, I keep that mouse pad close by in case you need to click the buy button a few times next week. And with that aggressive selling, Dwayne, you're not coming in immediately and purchasing options, some sort of re-ownership strategy. You're going to let it ride for a bit. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, especially with us up at these higher levels, you know, if we dip back down before, say, July 4th, then maybe I'd be looking at some call options. Or or two weeks from now, we've got a very important June 30th stocks and acreage reports. Uh, Informa was out with their numbers this week, and I kind of had to agree with them. They have soybean acres down 2.2 million. I, I'm not sure the exact number, but it kind of makes sense to me. Up in the northern plains, we, we struggled to get the crop in, but are doing okay. On my farm, I think we ended up about 60% planted, which sounds kind of sad. But if you would have talked to me a month ago, I would have been pretty happy with that. So uh, it seems like everyone pushed to get the corn acres in because of 750 corn, but the beans might have got shorted a little bit. So maybe you look at some call option strategies before that June 30th report. All right, Dwayne, on the bean front, we've got new crop November at 1545 today. You mentioned you're aggressively hedging a corn here north of 740. Are beans in the same boat? Are you putting some hedges on quite yet? Yep, yep, pretty aggressive there too. A really not far off from the same percentage levels. Um, it, it's just a great price. And I know a lot of producers said, well, I, I'm hanging on. I, I got 40% sold, but I don't like where my 40% sales are at. You know, they did it too early in the spring, which was fine. That was a good profitable level too. I still would encourage them, go ahead and get aggressive up here and get some sales on. We got to remember this time of year when we have these rallies, weather scare rallies are meant to be sold. On average, I'm going to assume that the rains will come. And remember, we got a really lot of subsoil out there now. And last year we found out subsoil moisture can really carry a crop. That drought monitor isn't really that concerned. Other than Nebraska in the uh, western part of Iowa, I don't want to disclude those guys. I know they're getting hot and dry, but for the most part, the Midwest is not in bad shape right now. No, it isn't, Dwayne. And as we take a look at another factor here in the markets, on the livestock screens, I've got live cattle, feeder cattle, and lean hogs all in the green today. Hogs moving up, uh, you know, reasonably, not, not quite a buck. Mm -hmm. um, what's going on here in the meat space today? I, I really like the trade action here late in the week. Again, as the stock market's dipping down today, crude down over 3 bucks. it's really nice to see that the livestock markets kind of separate themselves and go, well, that's true. The outside markets are pulling us down, but our fundamentals are pretty strong. You got pork cutout values on the rise and cash market rising higher, too. So I think that's why you got to get that August, con August and July contract up a little bit more. Maybe we're slightly overdoing it today a little bit, but I'll, I'll take the gains anytime. On the live cattle side of things, you know, I think, well, two things. We've got higher cash cattle trade again this week. Cutouts trimming back just a little bit, but I think we got good grilling demand ahead. I, you know, that's one thing I can do. If it's 100 degrees, I can sit out on a, on a shaded deck and, and grill some 
steaks and burgers. So I think you got some good grilling demand. And the other side of things, I think we have to build in a little bit of a weather premium in the live cattle market. Everyone's seen and heard, you know, some death losses in some Kansas feedlots, you know, the exact number, who knows. But one thing for certain is they're not gaining weight when it's 100 degrees. That is a fact, folks. We've been talking to Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing up in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, always appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. And folks, stick around. Jackie Fatka, policy editor at Farm Progress, will join us to discuss the ongoing ag legislation that's pending in Congress. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Get the coolest savings on propane during the warmest months with the Summerfield program from FS. The FS Propane Summerfield program offers customers the opportunity to fill their propane tanks during the summer when demand is less and prices are typically lower. From periodic propane system inspections to convenient payment options, you'll appreciate what FS dedicated propane professionals can do for you. Contact your local FS member cooperative today or visit fspropane.com. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40 plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you. I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. 
U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to talk politics. There has been truly a huge amount of ag-related legislation floating around in Congress and being proposed at regulatory agencies throughout D.C. And this past week saw a number of new issues emerge. Joining me to help talk about these is political policy editor, excuse me, at Farm Progress, Ms. Jackie Fatka. Jackie, thanks for joining us today. I was good. I like the policy, not the politics, but you know, those politics do get involved in the policy sometimes. They certainly do, Jackie. And let's talk both the politics and the policy about the newest uh, inflation fighting bill. And I've got that in air quotes. This is the Lower Food and Fuel Costs Act. This was proposed um, in the House. And Jackie, bring us up to speed. What's going on in this bill? So this is a, a Democrat bill, but there were some Republicans who did vote for it. And a lot of uh, pieces of uh, that, that do have widespread support, um, you know, for those of us uh, that have been watching, this was a lot of these bills were brought up a couple of weeks ago in the House Ag Committee. And a big one is uh, it does actually normalize the year round E15. Right now, we do have that summer waiver that the Biden administration was able to accomplish this spring uh, to allow summer use. But this is a legislation that would actually codify that. So it would allow for that um, RVP, the waiver to be be not have to happen every year. Um, and so it extends that one PSI waiver to blends of 10% or more. And then also some more to, uh, money, $200 million for funding for higher blends infrastructure. So that's a win for agriculture. Um, other pieces of that that bill, the lower food and fuel costs, is also implementing some money for nutrient management. So $500 million for N NRCS to, to do some extra things for farmers, some money to go directly to farmers, and then also expand loan programs to implement precision ag. So those are some things that farmers could see if this gets passed in the Senate. Um, and then also the, the Butcher Block Act, which is something that's actually kind of been done by USDA already to provide some money to expand those smaller and medium-sized meat processors. And so USDA had some COVID money that was going to do this, but this Butcher Block Act would actually expand that over the next couple of years. So to provide some more money beyond just what we are seeing in that initial COVID round of funding. But probably and, the yeah yeah go ahead. Well, I was just going to make note. I think it's interesting. This, as you mentioned, Jackie, this is a, a Democratic proposal. It is being pitched by a lot of uh, Democratic lawmakers in the House, and then of course in the Senate. But that Butcher Block Act, written by by Rep. Dusty Johnson of South yeah. Dakota, strong Republican. Have we ever seen many of these bills that pull in policy ideas from the other party when they're launching these omnibus pieces of legislation? You know, and, and I think that's that's part of, you know, when these most of these bills came up in the House Ag Committee, they actually passed unanimously. And so there was a lot of support for that. But then the problem was, um, you know, one piece that was also inserted into this broader package was this Beat and Poultry Special Investigator Act, which during the markup in the House Ag Committee, there was a lot of Republican concerns about whether this was actually going to create some more redundancy within the government, that USDA already has the power to do what it's going to do. 
uh, it, it's actually going to cost $9 million of taxpayers' money, and it may actually divert resources away from some of the things that we do need, like meat grading and other things at AMS, uh, the cattle contract library that they're supposed to set up. And so, you know, I think that was part of the politics coming into good policy, right? You know, we have widespread support and there were a few Republicans, you know, even um, Feenstra from Iowa voted for this bill. He's a very strong conservative, but he also is very supportive of some of the concerns that are going on in the meat industry. Iowa legislators have actually been supportive of something that may have sometimes seemed to have more Democrat support. Uh, but, you know, some of these issues are not necessarily R or D, they're more regional in how they impact the ag industry. And so, uh, you know, the, that's where this, this, you know, kind of comes together. But there was some criticism from the, the House Ag leading Republican, the fact that they did insert that Meat Poultry Special Investigator Act into this final package that maybe isn't going to do what they say it's going to do of actually lowering food costs. Now, Jackie, this is the Democrat side. Have the Republicans come with any collection of legislation to combat inflation, particularly in the food and energy space? Definitely. So Wednesday, the day before the House voted on their uh, lower food and fuel cost, the uh, Republicans introduced what they called reducing farm input costs in various domestic production act. Really mouthful there, but essentially uh, they were looking to take take a, they really aimed a lot of this legislation at a lot of the regulatory actions that are coming down from the Biden administration that are creating a lot of uncertainty or could potentially increase costs significantly to producers. So included in that is basically requiring a halt on the rotus regulations, um, rescinding that SEC climate rule, which is another thing we've talked about, requiring an economic analysis of the, the GYPSA rule, or we, you know, we call it the Packers and Stockyard rule. And then also, you know, we're hearing so much about these regulatory actions that are going on at EPA with some of the crop protection tools. And so also trying to roll back some of that regulatory things that are just, are, are really impacting farmers and could truly impact the cost of food. If we don't have glyphosate, if we don't have dicamba, if we don't have the ability to continue to increase food production, we're going to have a problem. And, you know, leading House Ag Republican Thompson said, if we could just increase the yields by one bushel, uh, that's going to make a difference around the world. But if we have to lose several bushels because we don't have these crop protection tools, that's going to matter. And that is really something that's going to impact food prices. It certainly will, Jackie. Now I want to ask you about that intersection between politics and policy. We've got these two bills out there, both both targeting different aspects of inflation, Yeah, allegedly, listening to the, the bill's supporters on both sides. Do you think either of these have the chance to make it through, survive the Senate, get passed, get signed by President Biden before the midterms? Or is this just a lot of grandstanding in an election year? Um, I don't think the House Republican bill, the regulatory rollback has a chance in the world to go anywhere. Um, but it is definitely one of those, hey, this is the Republican counterpoint to what they're seeing on the other side of things. Um, and so, you know, it is probably a lot of, uh, you know, playing into politics and this, but good policy, right? Like, yes, there is a politic game in this, but also good policy. We all know that regula regulations can impact costs. Um, you know, the whether the Senate will take up um, this bill that passed in the House, I think that's, that's a little harder to 
It's just hard in election year. I mean, we're into June, elections are in November. So, you know, you usually get to this point and and it's it's hard to see much of that advancing through. Now, that being said, there is going to be a markup on that meat and poultry special investigator in the Senate next week. And so they may try to take up their own individual legislation. So how, you know, will we see these divided out? You know, if things continue to carry on, maybe we would see a standalone meat and poultry special investigator act come up. Um, maybe you would see this, if they do get a, a, a good vote on that piece of it in the Senate, then maybe they would take up this whole bill from the House. And, you know, maybe that's their way to see what kind of support that they have for that more controversial piece that was in the, the House version. If the Senate could pass that alone or it, it does well out of committee, then maybe that's a good indication that the whole package could actually advance um, in both chambers. You know, we did see this week the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which the House had passed, the Senate had passed, and then the House went ahead and took up the Senate version. So maybe we could see a similar path. I mean, we're things things do get done. It's not all politics in election year, but we are nearing that kind of window of whether we could actually see things get across the finish line if there's not a real urgency to it. All right. And in the meantime, we're preparing for post-election policy making. I understand the Senate Ag Committee is on the road today doing a, uh, a listening session on the farm bill. Jackie, where are they? Yeah, they are heading to Arkansas for uh, Ranking Manor Bozeman. It's always kind of a tradition to the the first field hearings are in the chairman and ranking member states. And so uh, earlier in, in end of August, there was one in Michigan in Stabenow's district. And then also now there'll be one today down in Arkansas to hear from farmers. And, you know, rice farmers are really uh, have been hit hard and, and the farm safety net has not maybe been written in a way that is is able to offer them the same support that other segment you know other commodities have experienced and so i i imagine you're going to hear from rice producers and, and also probably some of those same themes that we continue to hear about how we're going to change the safety net you know crop insurance is always very well liked and you know you don't want to hear big changes with that but there's a lot of talk about whether you have a permanent disaster program how you create a reference price that doesn't distort markets and uh, yeah, we'll be, I'll, be, I'll be tuning into that here soon. All right, Jackie, we'll get your update on that, I'm sure, next week. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us here. And folks, that's Jackie Fatka, the policy editor over at Farm Progress. Jackie, we always appreciate your insight. Always great chatting with you. Have a great weekend. Folks, stick around. David McNeil, the director of climate risk at Fitch Ratings will join us here in segment three. So stay tuned. We'll have more AOA coming up. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. 
If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Corn and beans are firm this morning with a little weakness seen in the wheat complex. Uh, While livestock is all showing green, between about 20 and 40 cents for the fat cattle, uh, 30, 45 cents for the feeders, and up triple-digit gains for the front-month hogs. Crude oil was trading higher into the early morning hours, but has settled back since and is down about 350 or so a barrel. Crude has moved off highs from earlier this week, but remains within striking distance of the $120 barrel mark, still working on a higher end low so far today. The U.S. slapped some sanctions on Iran, China, and the Emirates yesterday in hopes of receiving a nuclear deal. While Libyan oil output lags, Russia remains hamstrung, and world demand is still seen rising over 2% in 2023 by the IEA. Current National Weather Service forecasts for the 6 to 10 and 8 to 14 day timeframes, as well as their current seasonal outlooks for July and the July, August, September stretch, show why grain traders are loath to hold short positions into the weekend, especially an extended holiday one in this instance. King corn has been on a solid run since June 1st lows, punching through technical resistance this week with fears of hot and dry weather now stretching into July. Of course, we've seen forecasts turn quickly before. On the flip side of the long weekend, that gives said forecast an extra day to evolve. Profit-taking will be swift and severe if the trade starts to see evidence of any type of cooler and wetter July for corn pollination. And let's get a look at some of those commodity numbers. July corn up four and a half at seven ninety-two and three quarters. July beans up three and a half at seventeen thirteen. Bean meal July up five ninety a ton at four thirty-five sixty. Bean oil July down one twenty-six at seventy-five oh eight. Wheat Chicago July down four at ten seventy-four and a quarter. Kansas City July down six at eleven forty-two and a half. And that July Minneapolis wheat that is down nine and three quarters at eleven ninety-nine and a quarter. While the Dow right now is down over 100 points, the dollar is sitting at 104.4, and crude oil is trading down a little over $3 at just under $115 a barrel. This is AOA. I'm Richard Ristvet. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org slash caregiving. That's aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for taking the time to make us a part of your day here today. I want to spend this next segment talking big picture about a topic we hear about all of the time. And folks, that's climate change. We hear about it in the media. We hear discussions happening about it in Washington, D.C. and in Brussels as we look around the world while this issue continues to grow in prominence. One of the things we note is that when these issues grow in prominence, whatever your opinion on them is, doesn't change the fact that investors are still looking at them and it's changing the way money is flowing around the world. And I think that's worth digging into, particularly for a space like ours in agriculture that relies on a lot of fossil fuel products and, you know, generates uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So joining me to talk about this space today is David McNeil. He's the director of climate risk at Sustainable Fitch. And David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's talk first about climate investing. David, you're the director of climate risk. We've seen investors move towards investing in things they believe are, are, are neutral or beneficial for the climate. How long have investors been looking at climate change as a factor to wait when they're making investment decisions? Yeah, so I'd say this is a trend that's been going on for about 10 years, particularly in the equities markets. Uh, within fixed income and debt, uh, where Fitch normally focuses, we've seen this as more of a recent development, so particularly in the last two to three years, much more of a heightened regulatory focus on climate risk and also much more of a focus amongst institutional investors and asset owners. And that is starting to flow through into capital markets, particularly in the fixed income side. So it's an interesting one because there's a lot of assets being committed to low carbon investment strategies or net zero aligned investment strategies. Uh, one example is the Paris Aligned Asset Owner Coalition, and that consists of 2.3 trillion of assets under management committed to low carbon investing. Uh, but despite this, we actually find that very few assets are seen to be fully aligned with uh, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. So looking at the global fund industry, for example, less than 1% of the total assets under management of the fund industry are seen to be aligned with a temperature pathway consistent with the Paris Agreement. So at the moment, two thirds of all fund assets globally are estimated to be equated with over 2.75 degrees of warming. So there's quite a gap between some of the pledges that are being made and commitments by investors and actually enacting this in aligning their portfolios and their portfolio allocations. Um, clearly, you know, there is potential scope for a correction here over the next few years with these pledges starting to ramp up with pressure on asset managers in particular to follow through on some of these pledges. So for example, we recently polled um, over several hundred financial market participants in a webinar with the CFA Institute. And we asked the audience what, over what period of time they thought portfolio investments would see financially material negative impacts as a result of climate change. And interestingly, over 51% of respondents thought they would see this within the next 10 years. So that is quite a rapid correction over the next few years from where we are now to where we'd ultimately need to be to be aligned with the Paris Agreement to be driving down emissions globally. And really that disruption is going to be key over the next few years that kind of alignment of portfolios with the Paris Agreement. And David, I think you said something there that is a really good thing for those of us to, to keep in mind out here in flyover country. The asset managers believe the negative impacts of climate change could begin import, impacting portfolios in the next 10 years. Was that what the majority of them believe? Yeah. 
So they're not making these investments just to look good necessarily. They're trying to hedge against the risk that we could see some pretty big policy changes coming. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at um, Fitch's rated corporates, for example, and the fixed income universe, it's actually a very small number of our rated corporates that have seen a credit impact from climate change. Uh, For all environmental factors, it's actually less than 5% of our rated corporates that have seen a direct credit impact from things like tightening regulation or from extreme weather events. So that reflects the fact a lot of these are emerging risks. They are really going to unfold uh, in earnest over the next uh, couple of decades effectively. But we are seeing regulation tightening quite quickly. We're seeing policymakers making pledges uh, under the Paris Agreement within domestic regulation. And now they're at the point where they have to translate that into meaningful action in terms of implementation of those policies. Similarly for asset managers, they are now at the point where they're going to have to realign portfolios to live up to some of these pledges. So it's an interesting kind of uh, period of development, I'd say, in the ESG investing universe. Yes, it certainly is. And one of the phrases that comes up when we're talking about the risks of of climate change or or broadly speaking, ESG in general, is the idea of IPR, David, this inevitable policy response. Can you talk to us about what that is and how that impacts investors thinking in this space? Yeah, certainly. So the inevitable policy response is essentially a scenario, um, a global macroeconomic scenario for climate risk. created by the UN Principles for Responsible Investment. And that's drawing on polling of over 200 policy experts on where they think there's going to be action on carbon pricing, on agricultural um, emissions, on deforestation, uh, many other kind of policy levers that are available to regulators in different jurisdictions. And what the IPR does, it, it shows the impacts on the wider economy of a regulatory correction over the next few years. So particularly from the mid-2020s, a, a very rapid tightening of climate policies and what will be the implications for different sectors. So we've used this scenario as the basis for assessing long-term climate risk within our rated corporates. Um, this is really addressing the problem that Although credit ratings don't put a time horizon on them, typically they do place more weight on the near term, on what we know about um, financial market conditions and how companies are likely to adapt to that. Um, One of the things that we've done here is to take the inevitable policy response scenario and look out over a longer time scale, so from 2025 out to 2050, across a rate of corporates and say under this scenario, what would be the risk to credit worthiness? to different issuers in different industries. And really this is trying to address the issue that many bond issuers will be issuing bonds that are maturing in say 20, 30 year time. And clearly investors need knowledge on the probability of default of that debt long-term. So it's not a credit rating, but it's looking at long-term risks to credit worthiness from climate change. David, I'm curious, and I'm coming back to the the global money flow in this issue. When the equity markets are are talking ESG or climate change investing, I, I get the sense that a lot of market participants view it as potentially a fad. But as these things start to get cooked into fixed income and in debt markets, are they going to have ESG proposals, climate change proposals, a larger feedback impact on policy creation? Will they be? Will these trends be longer lasting once they're cooked into debt and fixed income? Uh, pricing. Yeah, I mean, I think you've seen with the the SEC's proposals on climate risk disclosure, um, which will be coming into force over the next few years, you know, that is quite a substantial kind of lift in expectations on disclosure of climate risk. Similarly, we see many, many more 
central bank regulators across the world implementing climate stress tests of regulated banks and insurers. And again, there's this kind of buildup of an infrastructure for disclosure of climate risk and climate data. Um, clearly, we're at a very early stage of this. We know broadly you know, where climate risk lies in terms of the science. Um, we know, for example, in agriculture, you know, methane emissions being a kind of key concern for regulators. But clearly, I think you know, there's going to be much more of a buildup of disclosure requirements of kind of expectations of reporting of this data and, and this impact. And when that information is out in the public domain, I think it's going to be a lot more influential in investment strategies. And you will start to see the fixed income universe tilt away from some assets and into others. We have seen that particularly in the thermal coal space over the last few years, again, where asset owners, activist investors have promoted divestment policies from thermal coal. And again, you know, we would probably expect to see that in other sectors, um, other areas of the economy over the next few years as climate risks expand in scope, um, as regulations expand in scope beyond the energy sector into areas such as agriculture, into areas such as transport and housing. Indeed. Now, David, you mentioned that we are still in the early stages of, of compiling data and correctly interpreting that data. I'm curious, the models that are being used to forecast the risks out there for climate, how flexible are they to incorporating new data as it continues to come in? Yeah, so I mean, I think important to stress that the model that we are using, the inevitable policy response scenario, is just a forecast of what could happen under a Paris Agreement aligned outcome for policy. So we don't by any means expect this is what is going to happen exactly in terms of policy implementation and what will happen where. But we do think it's a reasonable assessment of policy risk and regulatory risks that could emerge from climate change over time. And the piece that we just published on agribusiness and food and beverage and climate risk, again, it's looking at some of these longer term trends, the flow of capital increasingly into carbon offset credits and the marginal value of land that that will equate to. Um, increased kind of cultivation of bioenergy from an energy security point of view, and then tightening forestry and land use policies from a climate perspective, and what are the impacts there long term for agribusiness. Yes, and we are hopefully going to dig into that report here in the coming weeks from Fitch Sustainable yeah. about the climate vulnerability of agriculture. But in the meantime, David, for listeners who are, it, maybe we've been unplugged from the climate change discussion, but it sounds to me like you're saying it's here to stay. These discussions are going to persist for some time. Is that right? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, given the, the regulatory trajectory that um, that we're on globally, given the expectations from asset owners in particular around wider disclosure of climate risk and particularly the financial impacts of climate change. Uh, we do see this as really being bedded in now, something that is going to really kind of take effect over the next five to 10 years in terms of disclosure requirements. And I think it's interesting just how much the discussion on climate risk is focused uh, very clearly on financial impacts of climate change. So this yes. is coming from asset owners, from insurers, all these long-term oriented investors that want to be sure they are protecting they their policymakers. They do. David, we've got to cut it off there, folks. Check out sustainablefitch.com. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block, 
maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. 
How many acres are you keeping an eye on? Another pair of eyes could be very helpful in protecting your ROI, especially ones that are highly trained. And that's what you'll get with an FS Crop Specialist. They can spot issues you might not even know you have using the latest technology, including thermal, drone, and NDVI imaging. Then they can get an early treatment plan started. Contact your local FS Crop Specialist to learn more about our crop scouting services. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ag Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for taking the time to make AOA a part of your day today. You know, I'm still thinking about that conversation with David McNeil right there. When we talk climate change, my goodness, so much gets thrown out and we tend to see emotions get very, very high. But to me, the key in what he said was that from from Fitch's perspective, remember, they're working on behalf of investors and it's these investors that own assets that are worried about the risk of climate. And that's what's pushing their research into this space. It's fascinating. Well, speaking of climate change, causing things. Crude oil is down today. We're seeing the price of crude, folks. I wanted to mention this. We're down just over 550 here in front month crude. WTI July trading at 112. Unfortunately, Today, we did see another record high price in the national average diesel fuel cost, $5.79.8. Unleaded fuel, still north of $5, hasn't set a record, though, for three days. A little bit of a respite there, I suppose. But this high fuel price conversation is driving policy in Washington, D.C. And in fact, we saw this past week a new bill introduced to ban this sale of oil products to China. Joining me today to talk about this and some other China-related news is our friend Simon Les founder and publisher of the China Trade Monitor. Simon, I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Good talk to you again, Mike. Let's talk about what this bill would do. Marco Rubio, Rick Scott introduced this China Oil Export Prohibition Act. Simon, what, what are they trying to do? Well, I would keep in mind, whenever you see Marco Rubio or Rick Scott's name on legislation related to China, they are really trying to establish themselves as the, the strongest anti-China hawks out there. So a lot of what they propose is not actually going anywhere, um, but it allows them to put out a press release saying you know, how, how tough they are on China. Um, in, in theory, when you're in a situation like we are with gas prices so high uh, and, and you produce your own oil, as we do here in the United States, you could restrict the export of it, and then you'd have more of it for you know, American consumers. And in the short term, that would lower the price. Uh, the problem with that is in the long term, it deters investment. If suddenly you're, the, the markets in which you can sell your domestic oil are, are diminished, um, you know, companies have less of incentive to invest in it. So, you know, you could give yourselves a short-term boost, um, but with some long-term harm for, for a general restriction on oil exports. By targeting it to China, though, you know, I, I think it, it really limits the impact, and also it has the potential to 
um, drive the Chinese closer to the Russians. Um, that's a big concern of, of everyone's right now. And if, if we said to China, we're not going to sell you our oil, I think they would look to their, their neighbor to the north who has, um, lots of, has some oil, also lots of natural gas, and it, it would really it almost certainly drive them closer. So I think that you know, if, you, if we were actually to do this, and I don't think we will, um, it would really have negative consequences uh, for you know, U.S. influence around the world. I mean, we really, you know, if, if, we're, if we have these two big rivals out of here, China and Russia, we don't want them working together. Um, and I, I think this bill, like I said, it's, I don't think it's going to happen, but if it were, I think that would be the main impact. Yeah, and they are two of our big rivals. And of course, you know, we're in a proxy war with one and we're, we're seeing China continually work with Russia in some way. Simon, do you have an update? How are things going between Russia and China following that phone call between Xi and Putin last week? You know, I, I think that China has tried to keep a, a balance here. Um, I mean, they, they just they don't want to be driven too far uh, away from Russia or too close to Russia. And so they're just, they're just trying to walk a fine line and keep doing business with Russia, but not so much uh, that they're suddenly subject to uh, enhanced U sanctions from the U.S. and Western countries. So, so I think you're just you're just seeing them, you know, just sort of, you know, again, just not not going too far in either direction. You know, China. I mean, e even if China is a big rival of ours, um, I mean, it doesn't mean that they're they're looking to, uh, you know, work with Russia to, you know, to reconfigure international norms and, and, and you know, they, I don't think China wants this, this big fight with the United States right now. So I think they're very careful about this. And, you know, they'll, they'll say nice things about Russia. They want, to, they, they want to keep that a good relationship. They want to keep doing some business with Russia. But I, I don't think we're on the verge of, you know, China defecting and, and like, you know, creating this, you know, sort of exclusive alliance with Russia that, that, you know, the U.S. and the West has to fight against both of them. I don't think we're going that, in that direction. I think China at least for now, as far as I can see, um, is, is trying to keep a balance here and, and trying to keep both sides happy to the extent that it can. All right. Well, Simon, we know that China purchases a lot of American agricultural goods. They also, however, have historically purchased a lot of Australian agricultural goods. That changed here a year or two ago. They started to get into a spat. What's the update on relationships between China and Australia right now? Well, so Australia just had uh, some elections and a new party took power, um, and this is a, a, the Labour Party, kind of a you know, left-wing party. Um, and so there's certainly some you know, thought that, uh, that the Labour Party might be less kind of hawkish towards, or towards China and try to reset relations, calm things down. And if you listen to the statements from the, the new Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, you know, he, it does seem to me that he's been very careful about the way he, you know, the way he expresses, you know, uh, his thoughts on Australia-China relations, and I think that the Chinese leaders have done the same. So it does look to me like there's a chance here to, to you know, calm things down, to smooth relations a bit. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult situation, though, because China really has uh, China got very offended by things, uh, some things Australia said, for example, related to you know, investigating the, the source of the uh, COVID-19. Um, and so you know, China took some, some trade actions against Australia that you know, Australia was really upset about. So you know, it, it's a long road back um, to actually go back to you know, sort of the tr trade ties between China and Australia that we saw 10 years ago. I mean, China and Australia, not that long ago, signed a big free trade agreement. Um, but, you know, we, they're, at a, they're in a really bad state right now. But I, I do think that there is potential for 
certainly like avoiding um, you know sort of ratcheting up the tension, but even you know easing it a bit and you know, improving relations. And that would mean you know for for your listeners, maybe Australia could sell more of their the ag products to to China again. All right. And that is what's happening there. Simon, I want to ask, well, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the program today. Always appreciate conversations with Simon Lester, founder of the China Trade Monitor. Simon, appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. And folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back on Monday. We're going to talk weather with John Baranek, and we'll have another policy discussion with Jackie Fatke here on the show. So we'll see you Monday for AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.